It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who know that champions are the kind who get kids immunized. <laughs> I'm feeling some queen coming on. We are the HPV vaccine champions. <laughs> I wasn't going to sing, but I'm glad you did. Congratulations on being Iowa's HPV vaccine champion. Oh, uh, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Absolutely. And we appreciate you. We'll talk about that later when we have Dr. Andrea Singh, who's mm-hmm. the Minnesota HPV vaccine champion um, and we'll have a Minnesota-Iowa off. Oh, fun. <laughs> we're not going to do that. Are, we're not actually going to do that. We're not going to do, do a trivia quiz? <laughs> I told her I was going to, and she was <laughs> like, uh, maybe I'm busy. I'm mm. like, oh, never mind. We'll just, just talk about HPV. The answer will be drop bears. Drop bears. <laughs> no, it really, it, it really was jackalopes. Jackalopes, that's right. If you don't know what we're talking about, that's from our trivia show in August. Yeah, go catch up on the previous episodes. So let's do Around the Web. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Stanley Plotkin, Dr. Stanley Plotkin, um, sometimes known as the godfather of vaccines. Um, he is really a, a kind, generous, good person. And that's what most people don't know about Stanley, is that um, he's got that like adorable older gentleman face. The great thing about Stanley is that the Children's Hospitals of Philadelphia made a series of videos. And they're really great because they answer just some really basic questions. They're all under two minutes long. They answer questions like, what is an adjuvant? How do vaccines work? What is the deal with fetal cells? That sort of stuff, some real basics. And Dr. Plotkin just gives um, interesting answers, not simple answers, but easy to understand answers. And I honestly, I watched them and I, I learned something new with every video. So it was pretty fantastic. And I'm super happy that he's in the videos mm-hmm. and that the videos are out there and they exist. That's cool. I have not seen these. So it's always nice to hear something that I need to check out. Um, where Where exactly can people go to find it? Well, I will put them on the show notes. Um, Mm -hmm. but they're on YouTube. So if you go to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia YouTube channel, that's, that's sort of Mm -hmm. where they all live. Cool. Um, I enjoy the times when I've gotten to hear him speak, I've really enjoyed it. So I I bet you those are fantastic. He's such a good guy. (laughs) So what's your around the web? Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about some, the big bombshell in the anti-vaccine world right now that's going on where, um, The World Health Organization held a global vaccine safety summit uh, fairly recently. Was Was it top secret? It was so top secret. I mean, the, the, and, and what, what happened, you know, Del Bigtree and his crew got hold of this very difficult to get footage. What they had to do to get this footage, this insider footage, was they had to go to the, WHO website and pull it off of the website where they had been mm. publicly streaming it the entire time. So that's the great level of 
investigative work to get this bombshell, this wow. secret information. Amazing. Isn't it, though? So it was December 2nd and 3rd. It was in uh, Geneva, and it was a bunch of um, expert, world experts on immunizations, as well as kind of representatives from various countries with their own concerns uh, for their own country in terms of how best to ensure safety and how best to communicate the importance and safety of vaccines. And in true anti-vaccine form, what this is there, this is a two day summit. So it is, I don't know, a dozen hours of footage or more. Uh, Hmm. If you watch the entire conference, it's hours and hours and hours of of people talking about the nitty-gritty about vaccines um and on a global from a global perspective so uh one of these things that so in true anti-vaccine form they pulled out a few minutes a few quotes out of context not really getting to see what the uh general like uh topic was that these quotes are, are pulled out of and try to make vaccines make it sound as if world health leaders and experts are seriously questioning vaccine safety. Mm-hmm. In case you had any doubt, that's not what was happening at this summit. There was not <laughs> like an overall concern about vaccine safety or efficacy or anything like that. They're having some very high level discussions on how to ensure and find, you know, precise concerns or, or root out precise concerns of various um, countries that may not have their own good monitoring systems, uh, depending on their infrastructure or whatnot, um, and how that is done. And it's interesting because, honestly, even if you don't go back and dig up the context of some of these quotes, even if you just watch these little snippets that Del Big Tree put together, it's not hard mm-hmm. to figure out that they're not really strong arguments for his case. Like they're really not right. saying bad things. They're saying this is how we can do it. This is the kind of data we need to answer your question. This is what we need to do. And actually in a lot of it, it's couched in language that makes it clear the vaccine, that there is a ton of monitoring uh, going on. Um, and uh, ability to, to root out even rare problems. So, you know, there's a few quotes in there. There's one mention that one of the doctors mentions that, like, she thinks that um, doctors only get a half a day of vaccines in medical school, but she says it in the context of educating parents about myths and how to convince parents. So, you know, as I always say, like doctors get hours and hours and hours of vaccine education because half the classes we take are directly related to vaccines, immunology, pathology, um, mm-hmm. all these kinds of, of classes that we take um, are directly related. And then we get right. some dedicated time on vaccines as well. But we didn't, at least I didn't, get a lot of dedicated time on how to talk to parents who hold myths about vaccines and what are all the myths that are out there we got factual education about vaccines and with the way that that's changed the landscape has changed educating about what parents are believing and where they're getting their information and misinformation is extremely important i think that's improving i do curriculum with our medical students and residents uh for that kind of stuff but when you watch the video if you ever see this video floating around um (laughs) watch it with a very critical eye and you'll kind of see what I'm saying that there, there is no like um, smoking gun in, in any of the clips and our good and very secret friend Orac 
uh, on the Respectful Insolence blog did a mm-hmm. nice post about those. Uh, it's titled, No, WHO scientists did not, quote, question the safety of vaccines, unquote, at the Global Vaccine Safety Summit. So you can check that out. So you saw a lot of this, right? <laughs> I, d- I did. I just wanted to point out that like one of the quotes he has is, uh, Dr. Heidi Larson saying the problem with hesitancy or the, the main concern with vaccine hesitant parents is vaccine safety. And so I think that anyone watching even like just that sentence would say, oh, she's saying that parents who are hesitant about vaccines are concerned about safety. Right. And somehow Dell twists that to mean the reason that there are hesitant vaccine hesitant parents is that vaccines aren't safe. And right. Just. um sort of stunning you know and uh, you know another doctor says that um many countries don't have robust um post-licensure monitoring systems mm-hmm. well there are a lot of countries in the world oh yeah yeah some of them <laughs> some of them don't have robust health care systems surprise everybody there are uh, many countries out there the the united states is a, is a country that has robust post-licensure mm-hmm. monitoring systems, as is, you know, Australia and the United Kingdom and Canada, you know, that's not who they're talking about. So it's just sort of this really, um, it's as though someone who wants to find gotchas and is super U.S. centric right. watched the videos right. and right. decided to interpret them that way. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And they talk a lot about like how lots of vaccine safety science is needed, they're not saying that what we have is inadequate. They're looking at, you know, we need just, it's important to have very robust safety monitoring and very, very high quality science. And, and that we have to continually do new, I mean, a lot of this is actually, so here's a quote from Dr. Larson, and she says, there's a lot of vaccine safety science that's needed, and without the good science, we can't have good communication. So although I'm talking about all these other contextual issues and communication issues, it absolutely needs the science as the backbone. You can't repurpose the same old science that's relative to new problems. So we need much more investment in safety science. Like she's saying, (laughs) we always need to be researching and making sure that vaccines are safe and we need to invest more in doing that like these are this is evidence that that experts are continually trying to invest in making sure the vaccines are as safe as possible that i it's they're almost half these are like backfiring quotes if you actually read what they're saying but when you Mm -hmm. edit edit them slickly and um um, you know, put some 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 music that sounds foreboding and pose a question, <laughs> a very foreboding question at the end. You know, you can get um, you can get a lot of clicks that way. Can you can you lots of donations to your GoFundMe accounts? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back for a second just to the whole doctors don't learn anything in medical school about vaccines mm-hmm. and. Th- that really bothers me uh, that yeah. that is portrayed that way. I, I think in part because if we're just talking about doctors, I mean, a pediatrician, an infectious disease doctor, of even a family physician, I shouldn't say even, a family physician, all of these doctors are going to learn things about vaccines that your average dermatologist or podiatrist will not. And, uh, you know, a lot of that, I think, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of it happens mm-hmm. in residency when you're working with actual human beings and they need vaccines. So that's exactly right. And they always focus on medical school, which mm-hmm. is not a great place to focus because, I mean, we do get immunization education in medical school. And like I mentioned, we take all these classes that are relevant to vaccines and we have at least some time that is dedicated to vaccines. In medical school, an hour or two of content is a boatload of content. So like you are cramming stuff. Mm -hmm. You've got, you know, a few hours of material that you listen to during the day, you're going home and memorizing and memorizing and learning it because you have a test. Some, you know, depending on every school is a little different, but like we had semesters where it was just, you had a test at the end of the week. Like you were doing systems Mm -hmm. on a weekly basis. And so even a couple of hours of learning about immunizations in medical school is actually quite a lot. But the other part of this is medical school is kind of your baseline. So people who go into medical school are going to go into everything from um, being a pediatrician where you immunize somebody. If you're outpatient, you're immunizing every day to many Mm -hmm. specialties and subspecialties where you will never deal with actually immunizing anybody. Um, or, you know, very, very abstract from, from, from vaccines. So there's just that baseline education. You don't need to know if you're going to be a radiologist, all the contraindications to vaccines and all (laughs) the myths that are out there. Okay. All the ingredients and all the vaccines. Radiologists are wonderful people, but they may not need to know that in their particular field. Um, yeah, and so you get in, in, certainly I can speak from the perspective of someone who's gone through pediatric education, you get that education in your residency where you're working and doing immunizing and needing to know the schedule, mm-hmm. needing to know what the contraindications are, needing to know what to look for because that's part of your job. You get it when you're studying for pediatric boards where they require you, you know, you're going to take this big board test at the end of your, your residency and you're going to or after residency and you're going to need to know this material really well and so you're studying for that and then you have continuing medical education it's fair to say that not every doctor whether they're a pediatrician or not is familiar with every single kind of myth that's out there or even not myth but the intricacies that you know like i am because i am interested in vaccines and know you know spend my educational time and my free time really just studying up on it but Mm -hmm. doctors know what they need to know to practice they know about contraindications they know what's safe they know what's not they also know about outcomes and they know that uh, the kids that get their immunizations don't get these diseases and they know that vaccines are not by and large causing you know widespread problems so there's always that variability in terms of what the doctor's interest is but any doctor should be able to answer your questions, even if they have to go and, and look stuff up, because we all do that. If there's an area that I'm not as familiar with, you know, some orthopedic problem I haven't seen in a while, I'm going to go look that up. Right. Uh, in a way that I don't necessarily have to do when it comes to vaccinations. And that makes a ton of sense, Uh because I think there are a lot of careers where people have classroom time doing something, but it's not until they're, you know, student teaching or interning or whatever, when the baseline of their education mm-hmm. has to be put into practice. And that's where they actually learn 
all the things that they've been sort of touching upon. And I think most people can understand that. So it's just, it's one of those, again, it's one of those myths that it's, there's a nugget of truth and it's taken so far out of context as to make everything look bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Almost everything when we talk about kind of the myths that, that, uh, circulate on the internet have some kind of kernel of truth they're just totally blown up or often it'll take that kernel of truth and then totally like make a lie about it it's it's interesting it's why i got interested in this topic in the first place was just because it fascinated me so much to see (laughs) how myths uh get 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 spread around and where people are getting them from and why people believe them it's really interesting stuff Well, speaking of doctors in practice, we're going to, um, well, I'm going to stay in my same state, but Nathan's going to come north here, and we're (laughs) going to meet Dr. Andrea Singh, who is the HPV vaccine champion uh, of 2019 in the state of Minnesota. We'll have a Minnesota-Iowa HPV off. (laughs) (laughs) That, Okay. (laughs) Right now we could have a snow off because we're getting inches and <laughs> inches rough. of snow and you guys aren't. And I think that that is not the way that the world is supposed to be. We'll get walloped. We'll see who ends up with most, more snow. I'll put that in the show notes too. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming for you. All right. Uh, after the break, we'll be back with Dr. Singh. All right. Stick around. We are now joined by Dr. Andrea Singh. Dr. Andrea Singh is Minnesota's 2019 HPV vaccine is cancer prevention champion. Uh, she works as the department chair of pediatrics for Health Partners Medical Group in Minnesota. Welcome. Do you mind if I call you Andrea? No, that's just fine. Well, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be joining you guys. We interviewed Dr. Richard Pan, a senator in California and a pediatrician, last year, and we asked him to sort of tell us what what personally motivates him to advocate for vaccines. And he told us a story about treating the children in Philadelphia during their awful 1990-91 measles outbreak there. And you are an HPV vaccine champion, so I'm wondering what personally motivates you to make sure kids are getting their HPV vaccines on time. That's a great question. I think for me, what personally motivates me is the fact that I think it is a miracle, really, that we have now vaccines that can help prevent cancer. You know, through my whole career in training, even before I was in training to be a physician, one of the biggest, you know, healthcare crises in our country has been cancer and and cancer prevention has been a really important part of all of the work that we do in the medical field um and so like personally for me when the hpv vaccine came on the market and we started to learn about it it was amazing that we are now stepping into this phase of medicine where we can actually do something ahead of things like radiation and chemotherapy and having somebody get an illness to stop cancer. So for me, I think that's a big motivating factor, along with the fact that I have two children of my own. They're boys, but I feel like this is a really important piece of their health. I absolutely want to do, I work hard every single day 
to set everything up for them to have the most success possible in life. And this is a piece of that. And if I'm doing it for my own children, I absolutely should be advocating for it for everybody else's kids. So we recognize that this is extremely important and amazing that we can prevent cancer in this way. Clearly, when we look at uptake, I don't know exactly what uh, the statewide percentages in Minnesota, but in Iowa, we have a lot of room to improve. What are some of these main barriers that you see in children getting vaccinated on time against HPV? I think one of the main barriers is not different in Minnesota um, as it is anything probably anywhere else in the world, and that's a misperception that kids don't need it because we are um, they're not at a stage in their life where a sexually transmitted disease um, is something we need to be addressing. You know, this goes to a bigger conversation about the fact that 11 and 12-year-olds, we should be talking about um, sexually transmitted diseases. We should be talking about what their thoughts are and these sorts of things um, because it is part of their life and their experience. And... So unfortunately what happens is parents think that because my child is not sexually active at 11, they don't need the vaccine. When in truth, you know, the earlier we can get them protected prior to any sexual activity, and so we're not talking about the kids that might be, you know, sexually active at 11 and 12. We're talking about the kids that, let's just assume, best case scenario in the parent's mind, that they're not sexually active until they're adults. Um, these are the kids that need to be vaccinated now, and I think there's a misconception that this can wait. Um, and I think that tends to be the biggest barrier, quite honestly. Unfortunately, I think there are some other um, residual concerns that parents have, such as um, it's dangerous. I have heard um, some people say, well, there's just too many side effects. or um, and, and that really has not been proven over the many years that now the HPV vaccine has been in existence and all of our international data with HPV vaccine, we know it's just as safe as any other vaccine that we have out there, which is really safe. I do see a lot of those same things being brought up, those same misperceptions about the disease and um, misunderstandings about the safety of the vaccine. And I just wanted to know, do you see any overlap? Are, are the same people who are like, well, this vaccine can wait the same ones who are thinking this vaccine is really actually unsafe? Or are there sort of like different lanes, people who are just not convinced that it's a bad disease? And then, you know, but they're not the same folks that maybe think that the, the vaccine is unsafe. What are you seeing there when you're in clinic? Great question. I think we're seeing both. I think we're seeing a subset of people, but I think it's the smaller subset that feel uh not only is it, you know, I don't have to worry about this for my child at this point in their life, but it is um, unsafe. And then I have, I think, a larger subset of parents that just feel like kids get a lot of shots. This is one that they don't really need, perhaps because it's considered optional um, or presented that way by some. Um, and uh, because their child is not sexually active, they don't need it right now. But I mean, I have lots of parents tell me, oh, you know, I, I think that's a good idea, but we're going to wait. You know, we're going to wait till they're older for it. And so then we, it, you know, opens the opportunity to have a good discussion about why it's actually beneficial to get it when they're younger. What is your personal preferred approach then to families? Let's say you go in, you have a family that maybe you already know that they're going to be hesitant about uh, getting the HPV vaccine. 
or you find that out quickly when you recommend it. Um, I know that, like, for example, we use the, I, I am a kind of a fan of that case method, which we can get into and discuss in detail if we want. But um, what, what's your personal approach when it comes to a hesitant family? Um, I think my personal approach is uh, really finding out what their fears are. So, you know, really having a good conversation about, you know, you've, you've declined the vaccine. Is there a reason for your, you know, why you are saying no? And then having an open and honest conversation about it. I have a great example of a patient I saw earlier this week um, who uh, the dad told me that they were going to decline the HPV vaccine because um, culturally, uh this is not an issue for them right now because they don't believe in premarital sex. And, and so his son was not at risk for getting HPV. And so that was great because then I knew what his motivation was. And so we had a really good conversation about um, where you have control over things in your child's life and the fact that, let's say, everything works out exactly the way dad feels that it would work out um, and that his child adhered to his perception of these cultural norms and didn't uh, get exposed to HPV vaccine until he was married, dad can't control what that child's partner will have done in their lifetime. So um, unless a child is never going to have sexual activity, um, this and the dad, then it was not going to be an issue. This dad after having that conversation, realized, yeah, I don't have control over everything that my child's going to do, and they actually decided to vaccinate. Um, so, you know, there are little wins like that, but for me, it really is about having that conversation. The other piece I think that's important is that it starts with the care team. So my medical assistant, when she is bringing patients back into the room and talking about what's going to be expected from the visit today, uh, really not presenting the typical 11-year-old vaccines as the tetanus, you know, the Tdap and the meningitis are required by school, but the HPV is optional. That all three are part of your normal routine care. And so parents aren't given that, like, automatic out. Sometimes I feel like they think that they are being advocates for their child if they say, well, you know, Johnny doesn't want three shots today, but two is okay. And so then, you know, using optional language gives them the opportunity to opt out or feels like it is permiss permissible. And I think really saying, no, all three are standard of care, and this is what Dr. Singh is going to present to you today and talk to you today, is really great for my staff to set that up ahead of time. The other thing that we have done at Health Partners, which has been really helpful, is um, start these conversations early and uh, standardize the way we start the conversations early. So we have a letter that we give to all parents of 10-year-olds um, saying, like, in the next coming visits, these are going to be the next couple of annual well-child visits that your child has. Here are going to be some changes because they're getting older and um, the expectations are going to be a little bit different for the visits. One of the things it talks about in that letter is that coming up in the future, we may have uh, – we may have some private time with the patient, whereas before the parent and the child were always in the room with the provider. Um, but coming up in the future, you know, there may be a time when a parent is asked to step out so that we can talk about private things. And it also gives the child an opportunity to have some autonomy and learn how to handle a medical visit. In that letter, we talk about HPV vaccine being really important. 
and a priority and something that we're going to offer at the 11-year-old visit. So I think setting the stage before that first conversation uh, happens actually in the having a conversation before that first opportunity where we give the vaccine is a really helpful tool as well. I think that's amazing. I really love the idea of setting the stage. I know that's um, sort of one of the things that we learn to do with our children, right? We learn that in order to help them be successful, they have to sort of know what's coming next. And it works for all human beings. It's a human thing, not a, a child thing. Along those lines, I think it is a human thing, totally. And Interestingly, I think just thinking of human nature and parents, because my kids are this age, and you want to please your child at the same thing you want to do the right thing. So if I tell my child that they're coming in to a visit and I think they're only going to get two shots, then, and I change my, you know, I change that um, while we're in the visit, then that's a harder discussion to have with my child because they've already anticipated two shots. If the child knows they're going to get three shots when they're 11, then coming into the visit and talking about three shots at 11 is not going to be as big of a deal because that was in their mindset from the very beginning, and then a parent doesn't have to go back on their word. Because you'd be surprised at how many times in clinic I get parents that are like, well, I only told them they were getting two shots, so we're not doing the other, even though I believe in it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of funny because you think, okay, well, that's great, but um, but I understand parents don't want to go back on what they promised their children. They want to make a doctor's experience a positive one. Um, so we just have to make sure that this is incorporated into a positive experience. Along those lines of sort of setting the stage, I'm wondering if there's anything that you find to be helpful in the social media space, maybe that you use. I know Nathan's a huge social media user. But is there anything that health partners or you in particular like to do to sort of get parents comfortable with HPV vaccines before they are making their way into the clinic? You know, there's nothing that I in particular do, although I think it's a fantastic resource um, that obviously we underutilize in the medical community, or some of us underutilize. Nathan does a great job with it. But um, I think that I know from health the health partners organization as a whole, we have various um, social media messages that go out to, um, you know, through Facebook, and, which is more for the parents, I know, but, um, and uh, different opportunities to remind parents about the HPV vaccine. We have not tapped into the resources for our adolescents yet, but um, okay. I think that will be coming. It was mentioned in your bio here that you did some work in terms of electronic communications. Um, And I was kind of wondering what you thought in terms of how technology can be used to improve HPV vaccination rates outside of social media. So technology, and I mean, I think we need to leverage technology better, obviously, in medicine as well. All of our patients are super tech savvy, and we know we have resources that can help us get messages across and better um, establish expectations. So one of the things that we were able, we recognized was um, a barrier to us improving our HPV rates in our organization a couple of years ago was that we really did not have a great system, we didn't have any system, frankly, in place for um, getting kids back in for their second dose. Um, So we were actually vaccinating a fair amount of kids on their first go-around, but, you know, who, who thinks about this stuff six months into it? You know, you may be very 
regularly bringing your child back for an annual well tile visit um, or an annual flu shot, but that six-month second dose is a little bit odd for some people. And so one of the things that we were able to do, and I think the technology is there to support this in lots of systems, is um, create a registry of uh, for kids that are due for their second dose. That really helped our system identify the low-hanging fruit of where are the kids where their parents have already accepted the concept of getting an HPV vaccine. They've already gotten one, but they're not quite finishing the series for whatever reason. And then we could use um, our uh, electronic medical record to reach out to those children um, or the parents and let them know, hey, you know, go ahead and schedule an appointment. Um, time's kind of up as far as that goes. Uh, the other thing that we have been able to do through our system is leverage texting. Um, so we have been able to build a system that allows the provider to, in the electronic medical record, as they're finishing up a medical visit, identify families that are okay if they get a text, and then putting in um, a time frame on which they should get texted about coming in for the follow-up visit. So we do a couple of clicks in the computer system. It says, text this family in six months to tell them the next HPV visit is due. And that goes out to the families on their phones. And then the families can schedule pretty easily through that same text. Um, you know, part of it is just making it easy for busy families to be able to do. And I think that was that process was really useful for us in capturing those people that agreed with the concept of the HPV vaccine and already wanted their child to be fully vaccinated through the series but just hadn't gotten in to complete that second or third dose, if the case may be. One of the things that I've found when I've done vaccine education, HPV education and advocacy is that we have not only an issue of um, parent and patient hesitancy, but we also have an issue of provider hesitancy, certainly in, at least in some areas of our state. I think this is pretty common across the country. Um, what can we do to improve that and what can we do to bring together partners uh, to educate both parents and providers about the importance of making of, of getting this vaccine and making that that strong timely uh, recommendation for the vaccine. I think that is a great question, and it it really is fundamental to making sustainable change um, in our systems because if we don't have our care teams on board with the concept of doing these vaccines they're not going to motivate families that might be on the fence because they themselves need motivation and interest. One of the things that we did in our system a couple of years ago is we did recognize that the whole area of adolescent health, adolescent sexuality, having some of these early discussions with families was a little bit of a no man's land for some providers. You know, Quite honestly, some of this stuff wasn't even taught in medical school until more recently. So some of our providers that may not have um, gone through medical school recently really were not comfortable having some of the discussions um, about HPV vaccine in general, but also about the inevitable discussions that may follow in terms of um, adolescent sexual health or you know, other things along those lines. So we as an organization put together 
um, a learning module for all providers, all uh, clinicians that care for children in our system. And uh, it was actually a two-fold um, system. So one of the things that we looked at was, you know, how do you have these discussions as a clinician taking care of patients in your exam room? How do you talk to parents? But then we took it a step further and said, okay, now let's bring all of the care team into this because we know that the medical assistant or the nurse or whomever is working with the uh, clinician is just as important a messenger um, as everybody else. And if a nurse, you know, is not does not speak favorably of the HPV vaccine and then a you know, clinician comes in and speaks favorably, well, now the parents have gotten mixed messages. And the first message they heard was for the first point of contact, which in many cases is whoever's assisting the clinician. So we did some mutual trainings with the care teams on how can you have these conversations, let's model them, let's practice different scenarios, um, and it really language matters in these conversations. So what kind of language should we be using um, to present these vaccines to families? Um, it was really helpful. And then we have some wonderful HPV vaccine champions in our system. Um, and so we utilized those resources along with um, the American Cancer Society resources to put together a WebEx that our providers were all required to listen to about HPV vaccine and uh, the language surrounding that. So we tried to tackle it a couple different ways, but it's really hard to tackle the conversation with parents if your care teams are not on board already. So I would encourage everybody that had an opportunity to influence um, care team delivery and care team education in any way to really, really think about how do you prepare people to have these conversations and have them in a way that they understand the evidence and they understand the resources and they understand the fears that parents might have? I know one of the things that you're being honored for is bringing in partners that people wouldn't normally think of when it comes to adolescent immunization, such as uh, dentists. And so I'm wondering if that is how you brought in the dentists too, or is if, if there's a little bit more shoe leather involved in that? Yeah. Well, for, you know, part of it is identifying who your partners can be. So a couple of different specialty partners that we've brought in. Um, one is uh, the one group are the dentists and one group would be our urgent care team. Um, so again, part of it was recognizing that we were missing a lot of these second and third doses for kids. And a lot of that comes down to convenience for families. So our dental partners here at Health Partners know that HPV is huge for them because it's not just preventing cervical cancer, it's preventing all these oral and throat cancers. And so they wanted to have a conversation about this. And so we really, um, you know, it just takes a step to say let's, have a meeting and talk about opportunities for um, making sure we are reinforcing messaging. Um, so I think they saw some of the messaging we were doing around adolescent health and recognized that there may be an opportunity. Um, it's been a little bit of work to kind of figure out how to make it happen. And, you know, dentists do not necessarily want to be having sexual health discussions with their patients that are coming in for their six-month cleanings, but they are very excited about the opportunity to talk about oral and throat cancer prevention. Um, 
And so, you know, part of it is not biting off more than we can chew and starting small and saying that in our partnership with our dentist, we're going to identify all of those kids that are due for their, that got a first dose. Parents are on board with getting the first dose and they're due for their second dose. Because, you know, as parents, right, we bring our kids in for dental visits every six months, but we don't go in for doctor visits, you know, more than once a year as long as the child is healthy. So, the cadence for the dental visits actually set it up really nicely where if they got their first HPV, then probably in six months they're going to be seen in our dental system. And if we can identify those kids, especially, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old that haven't uh, had their second dose and the dentist talks to the family and say, hey, it looks like you haven't had your second dose of HPV, you know, we can get that for you today. Let's hand you off to primary care and then they're going to do a warm handoff um, to our team that then can provide the vaccine. So we're piloting that. Um, similar situation with urgent care where um, urgent care, you know, unfortunately doesn't have the capacity and that's not really their lane to dive deep into all of the preventative um, uh, needs that a patient might have when they're in the office for an acute illness. However, we've come to partner with some of our uh urgent care partners in having them leverage the medical record. It's really easy in our electronic medical record to see the health maintenance alerts and see if a patient is due for a vaccine. And we know that we can trust them so that they're not having to, that they're built in such a way that they are reliable. So if an urgent care provider sees that a patient is due for their second or third dose of HPV vaccine, that is something that they're starting to offer in urgent care. Um, which, again, it's meeting people where they're at and providing this convenience, which we know, um, you know, in general, this generation of parents is really interested in us meeting them where they are at and providing those services in an efficient manner. So I always like to end our podcast interviews um, on a light note. And so I'm just going to ask you this fun question, and that is besides, you know, preventing HPV and all the other vaccine-preventable diseases, what part of working in pediatrics brings you joy? Pretty much every part. I think I am so fortunate to be able to do the job that I do for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, you know, we have the best patients ever. I mean, I laugh every single day that I am in the office. And, yes, some of my patients cry and some of them aren't feeling well, but they are so amazing and hilarious. And, you know, one of those kids smiles at you. Sometimes, frankly, if a teenager smiles at me, I feel like it's a victory. Um, so I think that that is a great part. The other part of my job, and I'm very lucky to be in this role, is that because I do get to help direct some of our some of our system care for children really impacting these kids for a lifetime which is it and for generations to come and i know by making some of these system changes oh my gosh i might not see that this child is um you know cancer free right now but if this prevents cancer in them in the next 15 20 years that's amazing so i really i mean i'm totally biased but i think pediatrics is the best job ever I agree. 
I, I want to thank you. I know you're very busy in clinic today, and then we've got this whopper of a snowstorm coming through. So I want to thank you sincerely for taking time out of your day to talk to us and share with us all this just sort of amazing stuff that you're doing at Health Partners and in the state of Minnesota and in your own community. So thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Nathan, um, that was a great interview with Dr. Singh. Just a reminder for everyone, it is Cervical Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, but HPV uh, prevents, or HPV is the cause of six different kinds of cancer, including penile cancer and anal cancer and oropharyngeal cancer, you know, throat and mouth cancers, and um, I'm missing some cancers. Uh, Vulvar and vaginal cancer, I think. Thank you. I forgot those guys. So talk to your friends about getting their kids vaccinated. HPV should not be a taboo topic uh, in any place except for, you know, I don't know, church. Maybe don't talk about it at church too much or in the movie theater because you should be watching the movie. I mean, not if you're not supposed to be talking. (laughs) Well, right. Like in the middle of a wedding, like don't interrupt his vows and talk about it. But otherwise, like pretty much talk about it everywhere. Over dinner, um, with your you know future in laws, everyone should be talking about HPV vaccines. <laughs> Just all the, time. all the time. That's that's our call to action. Change all your political conversations at the at the at the holiday table too. Darn tootin' HPV con- conversations. Those will be a lot more comfortable. Yeah, you know, there's less polarization at least a little bit. So. I, I hope so. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for listening and, you know, being part of our Vax Talk family. It's great to have you here. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Terms Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. All right, let's go shovel some snow. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>